from late capitalism where the only thing that is not privately owned is our own privacy this is how i'm your bitter blind broke gap-toothed radio show podcast live streaming host chuck mertz producing this week's show is alex jerry i was about to ask alan oh there he is hey alex how's your uh, week going so far uh you ever drop a five pound glass jar of cafe bustello instant coffee on your foot uh, no, but I did drop a hot casserole, like a glass casserole on my foot and had to get 17 stitches because I decided as it was falling, I was a teenager and I was playing a lot of soccer, that I could kick it up in the air and catch it. And instead I broke the glass, the solid glass bowl, and it went right into my foot and I had to pull the glass out. Okay, you win. Yeah. What <laughs> happened to you? I dropped a five pound glass jar of Cafe Bustello instant coffee on my toe. And then? I don't even know why I had it for any other reason than to just drop it on my toe. <laughs> Did you break your toe? Uh, I don't know yet, but I'm not going to go to the doctor to find out. Uh, you don't have to. It's a broken toe for Yeah, it's just say. a... What do the doctors know? Exactly. Yeah, when I uh, had that happen to me, my sister was luckily a paramedic, and she said, oh, I'll just put some uh, butterfly bandages on it and just keep it above your head, and it should be good. And then as soon as I stood up, blood sprayed everywhere. What kind of casserole was it? I can't even remember, but knowing my mom, I'm sure that there was tuna fish involved. Um, And uh, on the way to the hospital, my very, very, very empathetic father said, do you know how much this is going to cost me? Ah, the lovely childhood of Charles Mertz. I woke up Sunday morning after partying until 4 a.m. Sunday, so it was still in the morning, and I spent all day nursing my first real hangover of 2019. I fixed it with a hangover cure we've offered here on our show in the past, bitters, but I mix them with tonic water, and the cure suggests club soda. I can tell you bitters are way better with club soda, but who the hell has club soda around? Only a tonic because a friend had just given it to me as a holiday gift the night before, or maybe the morning. I can't really remember, but thank you, Lavette and Tom. Then last night, uh, beginning at midnight, Water Department was finishing some project they began earlier in the day. Apparently, the last step was to park a loud truck with a louder trailer in front of our place and run some kind of pump or generator beginning at 11.45 at night and until 1.30 in the morning. So my week's not going that great, but I figured all that will change during tomorrow's annual This Is Hell holiday office party happening at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon in Chicago. Join us this year, and I promise everyone who attends will get a show-related gift. That's tomorrow, Wednesday, Chicago 18th. Chicago 18th, December 18th at Chicago's Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon in the little indie neighborhood, which now goes by on Devon, which is ethnically generic and says absolutely nothing about the area than it being on Devon. Today, we will have a very, very, very sobering conversation on last week's vote in the UK, and it's not only that the conservative Tories had a landslide victory over the Labour Party and Jeremy Corbyn, 
This just may mark the end of social democracy in the UK for years, even decades to come. Hell, it could mean the end of the UK, which doesn't sound that bad until you realize that Labour's and social democracy's biggest supporters were in Scotland and Northern Ireland, which both may break away from the UK. Then we'll learn how the world was ruined by design, and that means it was ruined by designers. And we'll be speaking with the designer who admits his colleagues, as well as himself, contributed to ruining our planet. But there's still time to stop ruining our world through design. So if you are a designer as well, it's not too late, although it soon will be, to halt the creation of designs that are meant to destroy. Then later on this week's show, we'll be given an unprecedented guided tour of domestic intelligence centers that the U.S. has funded with over a billion dollars since 9-11, creating a network of interagency outposts called fusion centers. These centers were ostensibly set up to prevent terrorism, but politicians, the press, and policy advocates have criticized them for being a complete waste of time, a total failure, other than being a site of mass surveillance and supervision of the country's marginalized communities of color. I mean... It's a great success at that. And of course, we'll have the moment of truth with Jeff Dorchin. Our guests coming up will be editor and writer Matt Seaton, who posted the New York Review of Books article, The Strange Death of Social Democratic England. Matt is the editor of the New York Review Daily and New York Review of Books. Matt is also a staff editor for the op-ed section of the New York Times. Matt is a former editor of Comment is Free at The Guardian, and you can follow Matt on Twitter at Matt Seaton, that's S-E-A-T-O-N. We'll also be speaking with designer Mike Montero, author of Ruined by Design, How Designers Destroyed the World and What We Can Do to Fix It. Mike is the co-founder and design director of Mule Design. Mule Design describes itself as a strategic design consultancy helping business leaders and internal teams work with confidence and rigor. I didn't think I was going to say the word rigor on this week's show. Find out more about Mule Design at muledesign.com. And later this week, we'll be speaking with sociologist Brendan McQuaid, author of Pacifying the Homeland, Intelligence Fusion, and Mass Supervision. Brendan is assistant professor of criminology at the University of Southern Maine. He specializes in the critique of security and historical sociology. You can follow Brendan on Twitter at Brendan underscore McQuaid. This week's question from hell is, it's in reference to our conversation earlier this week with Jacob Hamburger on the Yellow Vest, when Jacob retold the story of the political demise of Jean-Luc Mélenchon, who had led the political party, uh, his political party, La France Insoumise, and got within 2.2 percentage points of being in the presidential runoff in 2017, a vote that eventually led to the current presidency of Emmanuel Macron. Jacob explained how Mélenchon is no longer head of La France Insoumise, following a series of scandals, including a police raid on his home when Melanchon yelled at the police that he is France. That makes this week's question from hell, what are you yelling at the police? What are you yelling at the police? Oh boy, I was just about to yell at the police on the phone last night about the water department truck working outside of my building until I realized it was the Department of Water and the police aren't going to do a damn thing about it. Leave your response at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. The person with the best 
answer to this week's question from hell will get Mike Montero's book in magazine form, Ruined by Design, How Designers Destroyed the World and What They Can Do to Fix It. We want to thank uh, Kennedy Prince for sending us your uh, copy of the zine. It really is fantastic. And that will be this week's prize. The person who has the best answer to this week's question from hell. Alex will have some of your answers to this week's question from hell following our first guest. Leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, and you will have a chance at, at winning the book, again, Mike Montero's Ruined by Design, How Designers Destroyed the World and What They Can Do to Fix It. Goodbye, Paige. Speaking of our list of favorite books to be featured here on This Is Hell in 2019, actually we weren't because I was going to be giving away one of our favorite books from 2019, but then Alex found the copy of Ruined by Design. I I looked over our list again, and it gives a really good summary of what we thought were the most important issues discussed this year on This Is Hell. When I was looking over our favorite books to be featured here on This Is Hell in 2019, it really did sum up our show over the last six months pretty well. While a lot of podcasts are spending their time and energy on getting Bernie Sanders elected, we thought it was more important to expose that rarely acknowledged American presumption that black people are less than human. We revealed how black abolitionists turned to violence provoked the Civil War in an attempt to avoid the most deadly race war the world has ever seen. We found that way back on 9 or 92420, way back on 420, before it hit the news cycle, the Trump administration is full of conspiracy theorists and we wondered what effect that may have on their decision making. Then we saw that impact a few months later when Trump started sending Rudy Giuliani to dig up dirt on an already debunked conspiracy theory. And we got emails from people who were really upset about that interview, suggesting that conspiracy theorists were running the Trump administration, saying that we were, you know, being derogatory towards conspiracy theorists. And then it all played out correctly. We talked about rape because nobody talks about rape and we need to talk about rape a lot more to have a better understanding of the most heinous crime and to realize rape does not define the rest of the victim's life. We considered the danger and trauma of childbirth and the potential to make childbearing far more bearable by embracing what it is known as full surrogacy. We re-examined apartheid only to find out African Americans had difficulty balancing opposition to the brutal regime of apartheid with their opposition to the Soviet Union, which also opposed apartheid, and that Mandela was not as radical as we may think he was. We introduced you to them goon rules that guide and limit black lives lived in fugitivity from birth. We discovered that comrade isn't the profane C word we've been indoctrinated to think it is. In fact, it's all about thinking what's best for your neighbors first rather than what's best for you. We learned that Clarence Thomas is a black nationalist and that black nationalism, like black politics, is not monolithic and that there actually is something called right-wing black nationalism. We were told how we need the end of all abortion laws if we truly want women to have the freedom they are guaranteed and truly, truly deserve. We found out that under neoliberalism, traditional morality has been weaponized and valorization of markets has replaced what was democratic government governance. We had revealed to us the racist practices of real estate that lead black communities 
communities to have lack public service and to be filled with dilapidated homes costing more than brand new white homes in the suburbs. And I brought that up at a party this weekend, and somebody was very, very upset that I mentioned it. We went back a hundred years to a time when everyone knew race, gender, and ethnicity to find who everybody is, until anthropologists actually did some field work and discovered race is a fiction and we are defined by our culture. We were also reminded that we are all racist, and the best we can do is to try to be anti-racist. And that's about the best we can do. And we are told about the history of police violence in Chicago to the point that they actually had a torture machine, and it was functioning not that long ago. For some reason, and for the life of me, I cannot figure out why, we thought all of that was far more important than endorsing any candidate for president of the United States and telling you to support them too. But this is hell, and we're not about telling you what to think, but more so what to think about. Now, it's likely that after listening to our show, you may very well come to the decision to support Bernie Sanders. It's also possible that our show gets you so angry that you take to the streets to join a political movement, which makes sense as the first step toward a political movement is becoming informed about the world's problems, being exposed to them, and being motivated to do something about it. We've had listeners contact us saying they didn't like what this or that guest said, and that's fine. We don't agree with every guest either. We don't want to tell you what your opinion should be of any of the guests. We want you to be doing some free thinking. But we're certainly not going to tell you what to think, who to support at the ballot box, or even if voting is the best way to make real change in what we call democracy here in the United States. It would be arrogant and presumptuous for us to tell you what to think or do. And the FCC would be very upset with us on WNUR if we made such a call to action. You are not our minions, puppets we control to do our bidding. All we're trying to do is get the information, the perspectives, the opinions to do to you that you are not getting anywhere else, and then you can form your own opinion and ideas on those perspectives. If you want to hear a show that is nothing more than a campaign for a particular political candidate, You're not going to get that here. What we provide to you is the thoughts and ideas of people who are far smarter than us. So you, too, hopefully, will make better decisions when entering the polling booth or even when staying home on Election Day, if that's your want. That's up to you. And it would be some rude-ass hubris for us to think otherwise. We will be playing all the interviews with our guests whose books made our favorites list this year on New Year's Day back-to-back, all 15 if we can fit them all in, from 9 a.m. Central Daylight Time until 9 p.m. Consider it your hangover cure for New Year's Day 2020. Alternative to alternative media. Independent from everything and everybody else. This is hell. The landslide victory by the conservatives in last week's U.K. vote may spell the end of social democracy in Britain during our lifetimes. And I know a lot of you are younger than me, but this includes you, too. The world has been ruined by design, and we'll talk to one of the designers who admits their role in ruining ruining it. Since 9-11, the U.S. has not only created a mass surveillance state, but a mass supervision state as well, especially in communities of color. We'll also have a moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, podcast, live-streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show, Alex Jerry, biting the hand that refuses to feed us since 1996. This is hell. 
Conservatives won a massive landslide victory in last week's UK election. So what the hell happened? And what does do wins for independence parties in both Scotland and Northern Ireland mean for the future of social democracy throughout Britain? Here to give us a very sobering look at last week's vote, editor and writer Matt Seaton posted the New York Review of Books article, The Strange Death of Social Democratic England. Welcome to This Is Hell, Matt. Hey, thank you very much, Chuck. I'm very flattered by your interest. Thank you very much. That's, you don't need to be flattered by my interest. Matt is the editor of the New York Review Daily, a New York review of books. Matt is also staff editor for the op-ed section of the New York Times, former editor of Comment is Free at The Guardian. You can follow Matt on Twitter at Matt Seaton. That's S-E-A-T-O-N. You write the immediate clear consequence of the UK election of December 12, 2019 is that Boris Johnson's Conservative Party has succeeded where Theresa Mays failed in the last general election in 2017 by winning an emphatic parliamentary majority that can pass the legislation necessary to facilitate Britain's departure from the European Union. In your opinion, are British voters more and more pro-Brexit. Does this election reveal to you that increasingly the British people are for exiting the EU? Well, I think they, over the past three and a bit years, three and a half years nearly, I think they became really impatient ultimately with the, uh, you know, the kind of parliamentary uh, sort of blockage over the issue. Uh, The fact that, you know, Theresa May brought her deal that she'd negotiated with the European Union back to Parliament three times and still couldn't get it through. So I think, you know, as time went on, it's not necessarily that the whole country shifted, you know, more Brexity. I mean, your listeners probably recall that the original 2016 referendum split very closely, 52-48. However, I think over time, especially as any kind of opposition movement uh, sort of ran into the, into the sand and failed to unite over the idea of having a second referendum, which was, you know, it was a popular call among sort of Remain voters, but it never really got a kind of uh, either in, institutional nor, nor a truly uh, sort of mass movement behind it. Um, so, I think what happened in the end was like even people who probably lost, you know, i.e. voted remain, not leave, some portion of them, you know, just decided they, you know, wanted to get rid of it as an issue, move back to politics as usual, stop all this shouting about Brexit, frankly. And and so I think, you know, what you see in, in this election just passed is, in a sense, a kind of pragmatic de facto second second referendum, which was to say, okay, sick of this, let's just get it done. And I think that's particularly in, you know, among these, uh, you could say more nationalistic or more patriotic working class voters in the north of England. I mean, I'm sure we'll come on to this even more. But I think, you know, some portion of them were always more sympathetic to Brexit anyway. And I think that in the end overcame their sort of traditional party loyalty to Labour. Uh, Did British voters, did they become numb to the idea of Brexit, that it somehow was becoming normalized, that whatever dangers they may have perceived, they either maybe underestimated them or believed that they had exaggerated them to begin with? 
Yeah, really good question. I mean, I think that as time went on, I mean, if you'll remember the camp in the original campaigning over the referendum, uh, if you like, the pro-European camp ran an extremely negative campaign, paradoxically. They weren't saying anything good about European Union membership. They were simply saying the sky's going to fall in uh, if we leave. And, you know, after, they, after that negative campaign lost the referendum and we went into this period of sort of limbo over the issue, um, the sky didn't fall in. I mean, nothing really improved either, but it wasn't as though, you know, the economy suddenly shrank. I mean, I think there will be some economic damage over the years. I, I don't think it'll actually be a net benefit for, for you know, UK Inc., if you like, uh, in the long term. But, uh, but I think you're right, it, you know, that people uh, were able to be skeptical about the forecasts of immediate doom. And that also sort of overcame whatever anxiety they might have had or reluctance they might have had to sort of pull the lever for Boris Johnson and the Conservative Party this time. As you pointed out, it was a 52-48 vote to actually uh, pursue Brexit. A lot of people were saying during that time that the reason that it did pass, because it was such a close vote, was that the British electorate was misled by people on the far right, people like Boris Johnson, people who were pro-Brexit. Now we have this re-referendum, this re-vote essentially on Brexit, and it looks like Brexit wins by far more than it did before. So what did this election, last week's election, tell you about the closeness of that original vote? Yeah, I mean, there's, you know, there's been some brilliant investigative journalism about the effect of uh, social media, you know, sort of, uh, you know, the kind of psychogeographic kind of uh, profiling and Facebook message, Facebook post targeting, advertising targeting at people. And that was influential. It's the same sorts of things, you know, that we've obviously had some reporting about in the, you know, 2016 election and the kind of, you know, particularly the kinds of things that the Russian interference was trying to achieve. I think that's unquantifiable in the end. I mean, um, I mean, it, it, all of that is, is, of course, disturbing. Um, I suppose that in the longer run, I see uh what, what, what is more responsible for that uh, referendum result, I, as I see it, is uh, a kind of longer term uh, failure for anybody to make a, any British politician of either the left or the right to, uh, to make a positive argument for European membership. I mean, even the Labour governments of uh, Tony Blair, you know, in, in the late 90s uh, through to 2010, I suppose you could say, including Gordon Brown, um, you know, adopted a kind of soft scepticism towards the EU. And I think in the end, uh, that, you know, damaged... I mean, that, that opened the way for people like Boris Johnson to talk a lot of nonsense about 
you know, Brussels bureaucrats, um, you know, mandating the shape of your of the bananas in your store and that kind of thing, you know, and um, and you know, Boris Johnson it is true is um, you know is somewhat Trumpian in his willingness to uh, to use to skirt disinformation in political campaigning, basically to use arguably you know lies and propaganda to to to, to win his cause. Um, and we also know that the Leave campaign probably, well, it, it just recently was, uh, had its wrists slapped for overspending, you know, breaking electoral rules uh, by uh, sort of using dark money uh, that wasn't accounted for. So, yes, there was some definite cheating. But, you know, I think in the end, you know, it, it's, it was a failure of uh, positive political communication about what the EU had done for Britain, rather than, you know, I think that in a way is is more countervailing than the sort of negative and disinformation campaigning. And, you know, the sad thing is that, I mean, if you go around Europe, right, if you go to poor parts of southern Europe, like, you know, parts of underdeveloped parts of Portugal, Spain, Italy, so on, you see like fantastic roads, new bridges, you know, you see a lot of public investment, and that's because the European Union mandated a lot of regional funding. So, yes, Britain was putting, like, you know, a large share of money into the European Union. But what was never really argued or admitted by a British politician was that it was then getting a lot of that money back, redistributed to poorer you know, more deprived, more post-industrial areas of Britain. You know, so I never heard a British politician say, uh, you know, if if they got European money to spend on jobs training or, you know, kind of uh, sort of inward investment in, you know, new jobs and et cetera, you never heard a British politician say, thank you to the EU, thanks to the EU, you know, we're, we're, we're sort of helping to rebuild the northern economy in Britain, you know. <laughs> Instead, you might say they might claim credit and say, oh, we've spent X million pounds here. You know, what they haven't said is that money went to Brussels and came back again. And they probably wouldn't have spent it, spent it in the north of England if they <laughs> left to their own devices. So there was, you know, when I talked in my piece about the end of social democratic England, um, I think that, uh, you know, what the left in Britain, uh, part of which is anti-European, certainly Corbyn's part is explicitly anti-European, but what the more centre-left failed to do ever effectively, I think, was to argue for how, you know, Britain being in the mainstream of Europe was actually a bulwark of British social democracy, because social democracy is embedded in Europe, right? And to the extent that Britain is part of that, uh, you know, Europe was actually in some ways bolstering that. So, uh, first of all, I got to tell you, I have like 55 questions written for you. I've, I've asked one. So <laughs> I know I'm talking to you. No, 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 no. I've asked one so far and everything that you're saying makes me come up with an, another follow-up question. So now I'm not losing any of these questions. I just keep gaining more questions. Is the lesson then learned from that we 
could learn worldwide from what took place in Britain in the election last week in the UK is the lesson that we can learn from that, that positive politics work far better than just being running an anti-Boris Johnson campaign? Yeah, good question. Um, I mean, if you're looking towards, you know, as we all are towards the you know, 2020 US election, and by the way, I'm a citizen and vote here now. Um, uh, you know, one's trying to kind of absorb what might be the lessons for us here from what we just saw in, in Britain. And I think, you know, there are interesting parallels and one probably doesn't want to push or lean on them too hard. But um, given that, you know, one big thing that... Uh, you know, Donald Trump has got going for him is that basically, you know, the economy is still kind of, uh, you know, humming along pretty strongly. Uh, I think, you know, it, it's, it means that, you know, it's, it's going to be harder to chuck the bum out because he's failed, you know, just in that, you know, given that most people vote on fairly sort of pocketbook issues, basically, uh, especially perhaps the kinds of voters that, uh, didn't vote Democratic in 2016, but had voted Democratic in 2008 and 2012. If we're going to get, you know, if the Democrats are going to build an effective electoral coalition uh, that gets, you know, that uh, those voters back again, uh, yeah, I think perhaps uh, a sort of simple positive message uh, is is going to play better than, um, you know, than what the kinds of things that Jeremy Corbyn was saying, you know, to the British electorate, which were, you know, uh, Britain is a country of food banks and billionaires. Well, you know, to a lot of people, that sounds vaguely unpatriotic. It's so negative about your own country that to a lot of ordinary Brits, I think that sounds, uh, that sounds slightly kind of, uh, traitorous almost you know i don't want to kind of exaggerate it but uh they don't like hearing that kind of negativity i think about their country and uh and whereas you know boris won the election boris i shouldn't call him boris he's boris johnson people call him boris as if as if you know we're on sort of affectionate first name terms which believe me i'm not uh but that he you know just had a single mantra of his selection get Brexit done. Arguably, that's a positive message. <laughs> I mean, you know, it was heard as such anyway. So that was another long answer that could have been much more <laughs> succinct. But you're at, I'm agreeing with your premise, basically. You write that new members have brought a powerful wave of energy and fervor to Labour's campaigning organization, rather as the Democratic Socialists of America have to the progressive wing of the Democratic Party. Part of the misfortune of the Jeremy Corbyn years has been that so much enthusiasm among a post-Cold War generation for whom the word socialism has no taint of Soviet bloc police states has been wasted on such a flawed and limited leader. Jezza was no Bernie. How is Jeremy Corbyn no Bernie Sanders? How do they differ? Yeah, it's really, really interesting question. Um, I mean, I think one important difference is that Bernie is, is in some ways, to my reading, in some ways more a radical Democrat than he is a classical socialist. I mean, 
I know in his own self-definition, he's a socialist quite clearly. So I'm not, I'm not minimizing that or denying it. But uh, when you look at his career as a politician, you know, from the time that he was mayor of Burlington, he is just all about grassroots organizing. The political revolution that he talks about, his phrase, political revolution, is really about, uh, you know, ordinary people's empowerment, you know, taking control of their lives, you know, taking back control in the famous, you know, Brexit slogan. Um, He's not talking so much. I mean, you know, it's a difference, obviously, between him and Elizabeth Warren, when Elizabeth Warren says that she's sort of basically pro-capitalist, and Bernie says, well, I'm a socialist, you know. So that is a kind of, you know, a distinction between them. But when it comes down to it, Bernie Sanders is not advocating uh, nationalizing, like, the commanding heights of the American economy. He's not talking about taking over, you know, the, the energy uh, production and distribution. He's not talking about uh, the federal government becoming, you know, like the principal supplier of broadband, (laughs) you know, uh, and that's the difference. I mean, Jeremy Corbyn is in a tradition of quite statist socialism, I would say. Um, And, you know, which sees basically, uh, you know, uh, occupying, you know, having the power of government and pulling the levers of government to, uh, you know, to make left-wing policy that will change the lives of your constituents. It's, it's much more top-down, actually. And I think, you know, it, it's, under, under, it's under understood that uh, Bernie's a bottom-up guy and, and Corbyn comes from a top-down tradition of socialism. So there's this analysis that's going around right now that Corbyn's loss means that in the United States, we should not be supporting Bernie Sanders for president because he is going to be too far left, just like Corbyn is too far left. From what you were just saying, is the real case that Bernie Sanders is not that far left? Um, Yeah, I think that's I think that's absolutely I think that's true and fair. I think Bernie Sanders kind of. I don't think people who are kind of uh, for Bernie or even people who are critical of Bernie would doubt for a minute his loyalty to the United States and his pride in being an American. And I think that's one thing that alienated British voters from Jeremy Corbyn. I don't think they had that confidence in Corbyn. Um, So, yeah, I think... I think I think that's uh, a reasonable argument that you know you should not take the lesson of Corbyn's failure uh, to necessarily uh, you know pull your vote from Bernie and give it to Joe Biden. However, I think that is there is one important similarity which you know kind of has me worried about the sort of British political left scene and the American political center left scene, you could say, which is, I do think, uh, and I think you saw it really uh, starkly in the in the UK election, that a gap as a kind of culture gap has opened up between a kind of progressive metropolitan, quite young, almost professional class left, uh, who are much more sort of 
you know, much more sort of uh, progressive on a whole, you know, raft of issues, including, you could say, a lot of cultural issues, and a more sort of somewhat more socially conservative, more patriotic, more moderate, um, sort of blue, often blue collar uh, type of voter, you know, heartland voter, might, we might call them in America. Um, uh, and I think that. I think, you know, Democrats would do well to attend to how to bridge that gap and not get caught out in the really drastic way that the British Labour Party has in this electoral cycle. Right. And you point out how this uh, support or opposition to Brexit has had an impact on the internal politics of each of, of the conservatives of the Labour Party. You point out that how the Labour Party was having this huge divide over supporting Brexit or not, that it was factionalizing that uh, the right wing. And then for whatever reason, the Labour Party decides, OK, we'll have a referendum on this thing that's dividing the right. And now it's dividing the left. How poor of a miscalculation was that? And what do you think the Labour Party was thinking when they decided to have this referendum that turned something that was breaking up the right into something that was breaking up the left? Yeah, I really scratch my head about that one. I mean, with hindsight, I do think it was just a a catastrophic error. I mean, you know, this was, as everybody could see at the time, when David Cameron promised the referendum, um, which he then lost and had to stand down from his own party leadership as a result. Uh, you, you know, it was all about solving the internal ructions in the Conservative Party. Um, and unfortunately, by going along with the referendum, which, you know, I can't see that there was any real interest for the Labour party or any party other than the conservative party i can't see any i can't see any interest uh, of theirs in going along with it nevertheless they did um i just think they bought into the argument that you know let's let's clean let's let's just uh let's solve this issue once and for all <laughs> boy did it get solved once and for all but not in the way that they thought you know <laughs> But yeah, it's very ironic that it ended up tearing the Labour Party apart and reuniting the Conservative Party. And it's unfortunately that uh, sort of falls into a kind of classic narrative of British politics, which is uh, the Conservative Party is brilliant at pragmatic, pragmatically uh, sort of, you know, uniting itself, ditching an unpopular leader if it needs to. Uh, but finding a way uh, to hold on to power, to keep itself electable, to maintain an electoral coalition, uh, despite its you know, internal differences. In some ways, it's much more uh, uh, hungry for power and uh, you know, kind of focused on holding on to it. And I think there is an interesting analogy with the GOP here. I think Republicans have that instinct too, in a way that, you know, the Democrats rather like the British Labour Party are much more likely to tear themselves apart over what often in the end is the kind of narcissism of relatively small differences. Uh, Obviously, Brexit was not a small difference. That was a kind of 
huge problem for Labour's electoral coalition. But I'm just talking about it in general terms. You know, I wish, I wish the the Labour and you know Democrats were sometimes as sort of ruthless, uh, not necessarily as nihilistic as the Republicans now are, because they're basically not a democratic party, small d democratic party anymore. But um, uh, yeah. <laughs> so we, earlier this year, we were talking to writer D. Hunter, who has a book out called Chav Solidarity. And he was talking about how he's from the North, uh, working uh-huh. class from the North. And that's the historically, an area, area that historically backed the Labor Party. And he said that they felt like they were abandoned by the Labor Party policies under Tony Blair, the more neoliberal policies under Tony Blair. Do you think that Tony Blair's legacy had any effect on support for Labor in last week's vote? Um Sorry, what's the last part of that question again? Because I was just starting to think about it. It's <laughs> uh, such an interesting question. Do you think Tony Labor, Tony Labor, Tony Blair's legacy had an effect on uh, support for Labor in this election? Right. Yeah. Um, well, I, yeah, I, I think we still are in the shadow of the Blair years. Uh, I don't completely agree with D. Hunter's thesis, though. I mean, uh, you know, whatever you think of him and his record, and certainly there's plenty to criticize, but Tony Blair won three elections on the trot. You know, no, no Labour prime minister, no Labour leader ever did that. Um, you know, it, I mean, it's, you know, it was the, mo- it was the longest period of Labour government in the post-war period. And for somebody like me who grew up in the Thatcher years, you know, kind of came of age in the early 80s and had to endure five electoral losses by Labour before they finally won. You know, one is people like me are incredibly conditioned by that. You know, the idea of just being shut out, feeling disenfranchised, uh, you know, because your party can't win. In the end, you know, that's more important than not having you know, the kind of perfect socialist, you know, government that you would like in your dreams, you know. I do think there is definitely something to D. Hunter's argument that, you know, just as, you know, kind of, you could say, sort of third way Democrats uh, bought into some of the kind of neoliberalism, the kind of, uh, you know, low regulation uh, kind of economy, it didn't help rebuild trade unions and that kind of thing. I, uh, I think that absolutely didn't do enough for people who are caught in deindustrialized or deindustrializing areas. Uh, I do think that's true. However, it was precisely those people in this election who rejected the uh, the Corbyn alternative. So, in other words, you know. Um, it's not as though, uh, you know, those working class Labour voters in the North, uh, you know, had a critique of neoliberalism that made them embrace Jeremy Corbyn's socialism, like almost, you know, almost the opposite. You know? um, I do think there are very much still lessons to be learned from uh, the failures of the new Labour years, the Blair years. Uh, and I think that'll be part of the debate that Labour needs to have. Um, 
you know, going forward from this defeat, uh, you know, to me, <laughs> the conclusion is, you know, that you want, you know, some new kind of offer that is neither hard left Corbynite socialism, nor sort of, uh, you know, kind of centrist, um, sort of temporized sort of uh, cap capitalism with a kind of face that perhaps, uh, you know, uh, people perhaps associate more with the Blair years. You write that a minority of Britons, roughly a third, who will now see themselves as effectively disenfranchised, voted for a radical expansion of the public sector, a great leap forward toward a socialist Britain. But the plurality chose a party that, while promising more spending, has actually recomposed itself under a reanimated Thatcherite vision of exclusionary, anti-egalitarian, moralizing Social Darwinism. Social Darwinism is in the past has been used to justify conservatism, imperialism, racism, discourage intervention and reform. There are many on social media industry outlets arguing the vote for the conservatives was all about nothing other than racism. When you see people post, what is the what? Uh, how can you explain Corbyn's loss? A lot of people just posted the single word racism. Was this all about racism? If it wasn't all about racism, then what else was this about? What is missed when we view this as nothing but being a vote about racism? Uh, wow. Well, uh, there's a lot to chew on there. Um, I, th I think my first response to that is um, anytime you're calling people who didn't vote for your <laughs> your party racist you're losing <laughs> and you're going to keep losing so um i mean i think you hear a bit of this in the united states as well and um, you know uh the left in the united states understandably angry and frankly worried about what's happening to you know not just to the, the society but also just to democracy itself in america um but um the idea that, you know, that there were 3 million people who voted for Obama who didn't show up in 2016. Now, are they all, you know, how can they all be racist? You know, the same country that voted for Trump also voted for Obama, in other words. So it's not as though the whole country came, you know, became white nationalist or white supremacist overnight. Or I said not the whole country, but, you know, like, you know, 40% of the country didn't become white nationalists or white supremacists overnight. You know, yes, some illiberal, bigoted uh, sentiment does knock around and it's always like beneath the surface, perhaps. And now it's more overt, but it didn't just get invented, you know. But people are complicated. You know, voters are complicated. Uh, they can have, uh, uh, you know, they can be really nice to their uh you know, black or brown neighbors, I'm talking about white voters, can be really nice to their black or brown neighbors, but still have horrible views about immigration, you know. And I think, you know, in, when if you take that to Britain, you know, probably a lot of American listeners won't necessarily know that Britain has a really big Muslim population now, you know. It has a lot of people originally immigrants from South Asia, from India, Pakistan, and Bangladesh living, especially in the north, actually. And I'm not saying it's a kind of, um, you know, post-racial, uh, multicultural paradise. But when you talk about, when, if we're talking about racism in British terms, you know, 
in many ways, it's a very cohesive society and a very, quite a successful multicultural society. So, so although there's a lot of nationalism and, you know, God knows some nasty things happened before the uh, referendum, not long before the referendum, a, a British Labour MP was murdered by a white, you know, white nationalist. So, you know, some disturbing things are happening, but it's definitely not a vote about racism. I, if, if, it's a, if it was a vote about immigration, if Brexit was partly about immigration, it was much more focused, uh, I th- would think, on uh, immigrants allowed in from Eastern Europe by freedom of movement once, they, once their countries had joined the EU. So, you know, I think a lot of those white English working class voters, they might sound quite prejudiced about Romanians and Bulgarians, but that's not racism exactly in my book. And they would not sound racist if they were talk- if you heard them talking about, you know, their um, uh, their British Pakistani neighbours. You know, I mean, I'm not saying they never would. So I, I kind of think we have to be very careful about tagging uh, tagging our what we perceive to be our political opponents as racist. Yeah, we recently talked to um, Liza Featherstone, and she was saying how if you just think the problem is misogyny, then that might be a political dead end because misogyny is such a difficult thing to overcome. However, all of the different practices and institutions that support misogyny, you should be focusing on them, not the greater idea. And it's the same idea with racism, that you can't just you know focus on something that might be a political dead end like racism because you have to solve racism to address other problems. You should be focusing on the racist institutions and practices and policies that can be overcome. You write parts of Labor's manifesto program were undoubtedly appealing to many voters. But in this electoral cycle, the Tories' crude but effective message on Brexit trumped anything Labor had to offer, and Corbyn's negatives were even higher than Johnson's. What was the Tories' crude message, and why was it so effective? Well, it was just this slogan that Boris Johnson you know, just kept repeating uh, you know, let's get Brexit done, get Brexit done. And, you know, I think the fatigue that people have had with the whole Brexit saga just made that very appealing. And, um, you know, it's a, sim- it's a simple, simple message. I mean, it is true that a lot of Labour's programme is fairly popular, you know, uh, sort of ending austerity, prog- uh, you know, the austerity programme, starting to spend more um, public money on the health service and, and social services and so on. Uh, you know, even the you know some Green New Deal kind of ideas as well. I mean, I, I think a lot of that goes down pretty well. However, I think that you know Labour got trapped in this election because it didn't have a good, clear message on Brexit at all, and so it only had. Uh, all it had to build on was what people liked about its manifesto platform from the previous election, which was this more, you know, expansive uh, sort of spending program. Uh, but so then all they had to do was kind of double down on that and just promise more and more. And I think actually yeah, how that came across to a lot of voters was, well, we liked we liked what you said in 2017, 
But now that you're just you're saying the same and more and kind of throwing in the kitchen sink as well, I don't quite believe you. <laughs> you know, like it doesn't it doesn't really add up. It doesn't you know that all, all these promises just don't kind of smell of reality to me. Um, so I think they got they just. I mean, they really got stymied behind the Brexit issue is the honest answer. And, and then, you know, they could talk about um, improving the National Health Service until they were blue in the face. But it actually just uh, wasn't going to, uh, it, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't an effective counter message to what the Tories were doing. Was the vote then a referendum that supports austerity, privatization, conservatism, nationalism, anti-immigration. Is this a mandate for Tories to do whatever they please that they can have carte blanche? Or is this only about Brexit? I think that's an interesting, that's an interesting debate, actually, because um, I've seen quite a lot of commentary. I mean, if you look at what Boris Johnson was promising, he was promising to, uh, you know, hire more police officers, uh, add, you know, several thousand nurses to, you know, the National Health Service and so on. So he was spending, he was promising a certain amount of extra spending. Now, uh, he will probably do some of that. He'll have to deliver some of that. His big challenge now is uh, whether he really follows through on that. Because I think, and I, you know, I think there's actually a certain amount of, weirdly, a certain amount of complacency among sort of left of centre commentators, I think in the UK at the moment. I mean, I could be, I could be far wrong about this. I admit, but I, I think that because he, they think that Boris Johnson's own instincts are to be uh, sort of quite a centrist kind of consensual, sort of moderate uh, type of conservative, that they think basically, uh, you know, economically and socially things are not necessarily going to be too bad. But however, to me, uh, his parliamentary caucus has changed a lot. You know, all the sort of pro-European moderates have been cleared out. Uh, the sort of hardline Brexiteer faction have really won. And they are kind of in control of it, it now. And, you know, Brexiteers tend to be this more kind of Thatcherite conservative I'm talking about, you know, much more hard-nosed, much more anti-union, uh, much more small state, small government in, in their instincts. And I'm not at all sure that uh, this conservative government is not going to end up being, uh, you know, its model for the British economy uh, this is not my phrase, is sort of Singapore on Thames. In other words, a sort of free trading, open economy, um, you know, which is actually going to benefit probably, you know, the sort of London metropolitan area. But if you're looking at the future for sort of manufacturing and industrial jobs, which, you know, still skew to the north of England, I, I'm just really doubtful about whether uh, Johnson's Conservative government will deliver anything for them. So, I mean, in some ways, that leaves a chink of a ray of hope, if you like, for the Labour Party looking forward. Because I think the, the electoral coalition that's put Boris Johnson in power in this election cycle 
may be more temporary and more fragile because of that. Um, so, you know, <laughs> it's a small silver lining, but that's that's it. Do you think that kind of Singaporean grand bargain would work in the UK? We'll give you tons of money for infrastructure. We'll improve public housing. We'll spend all this money on you. Of course, you have to live in a police state. <laughs> right. Well, I think there is... I don't think the signs are good. I mean, I think, you know, the model of that economy is is low regulation, but ever increasing uh, wealth inequality, actually. So, you know, a very hierarchical society and, you know, quite illiberal as well. And of course, Britain's withdrawal from um, from the European Union means that it's not going to sign up now anymore to um, kind of European norms on sort of human rights. Um, it's, uh, I mean, there's actually, there was a somewhat disturbing section in the Conservative um, platform where it was talking about parliamentary reform, constitutional reform, uh, reform of the judiciary. Now, you know, that may not amount to a lot, but, you know, some some people have looked at that wording which is part of you know johnson's platform and uh are quite disturbed by uh what's implied there in in creating a much stronger executive you know in a way a kind of more sort of presidential type of uh sort of prime ministership or premiership um you know with much less judicial review with uh, weakened oversight from Parliament, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I think there is a potential for a quite an illiberal turn, and I don't think it'll turn into a police state or, you know, anything as sort of authoritarian really as Singapore, because you know Britain does have its liberal traditions. But I think uh, I think we're right to be concerned about that. You also uh, point out that contact, you mentioned his Corbyn has only been since, uh, I'm sorry, it has only been since Corbyn himself became Labour Party leader in 2015 that his record of international solidarity with terrorist groups, those that we, he saw as opposed to U.S. imperialism, came under serious scrutiny, in particular his camaraderie or comradely consorting with Hezbollah, Hamas, and the PLO. Considering that history, how vulnerable was Corbyn, was the Labour Party, to defeat among non-leftists? Was it simply a mistake, considering that history, that he would be incredibly vulnerable to not being elected? Well, probably the thing that would have, uh, you know, resonated most with British voters is not so much the Hezbollah and Hamas stuff, Uh you know, his record of calling them friends and so on, uh, and in inviting them to meetings in Parliament and so on. That would certainly have been disturbing to British Jewish voters. And, and you know, we saw the way that the Labour Party succeeded in basically driving away most of its Jewish voters who came to believe that, you know, the party, if not actually anti-Semitic itself, was completely unwilling to deal with you know, real problems of anti-Semitism anti from a minority of its membership. But the thing that would have really chimed more with a lot of voters once they kind of saw it and realized it was uh, Corbyn's history of, uh, you know, welcoming Sinn Féin, which was a political 
wing of the Irish Republican Army during the Troubles, the IRA. Um, And, you know, that was a controversial thing at the time. Uh, Only sort of people on the hard or far left in Britain really, uh, you know, dared to do that. Um, And uh, and I think, you know, that's a kind of uh, probably for a certain portion of of sort of British voters uh, who maybe weren't necessarily aware of it at the time when it was happening in the 1980s and maybe early 90s, when they were reading about it in the press in the last few months, it was probably definitely a mark against Corbyn in their books. And you write that contact with such groups, again, Hezbollah, Hamas, PLO, is not automatically disqualifying, but any responsible British politician would want to take care that such initiatives in the cause of peace and dialogue did not cut across official diplomatic channels. But that was not Corbyn's concern. He and others of his persuasion regard the U.S. Imperium as the source of all evil in the world. And in the Middle East, that means seeing Israel as America's proxy. What's wrong with seeing the U.S. Imperium as the source of all evil in the world and Israel as his proxy when it comes to the British electorate? Well, I'm laughing because, you know, (laughs) this is perhaps where I sort of, you know, out myself as kind of more of a social Democrat than (laughs) than a socialist, you know. Um, And obviously, you know, I've taken up U.S. citizenship myself and I, I, I see the positive side of American democracy and the American Republic, as well as, you know, the big negatives of, of its foreign policy historically. So I, I, I just think having a kind of um, crude picture of uh, America's place in the world, which after all, until recently, has been a promoter of human rights and democracy abroad. Now, you could say, it, particularly in the Cold War, that a lot of that was extremely, you know, instrumental and in bad faith, and I completely agree. But, you know, America is not one thing, you know, and it's, yes, it has had a malign influence in a lot of parts of the world at different times, you know, South American coup d'etats and so on. I'm not denying any of that. But, um, you know, Corbyn and co, they're, sort of, if you like, their myopia about that is they only see the bad stuff that the United States does in the world, which means they have a complete blind spot about the bad stuff Russia does in the world. So they have nothing to say, really, about, you know, the annexation of Crimea by Putin. They have really very little to say about the the kind of overwhelming evidence that Russia has carried out you know, state-sponsored assassination attempts in, you know, British territory, in in sovereign, you know, sovereign England, you know, Um, they really don't want to criticize that. So, unfortunately, they're very sort of, to me, kind of crude, Manichaean, black and white view of the world means that they end up in a kind of, you know, to me, stupid position, which is America bad, Russia good. You know, I'm, I'm crudely characterizing it, obviously, uh, but that's, you know, not inaccurate in my view. 
you also write that uh, capitalizing on popular disillusion with new labor in the post-2008 recession, the conservatives applied the shock therapy of austerity, ruthlessly pruning back the welfare state in ways that Thatcher could only have dreamt of. Austerity's architect, the then-presiding Tory chancellor George Osborne, has been rewarded for what he no doubt regards as his personal merits with no fewer than six fee-paying jobs, including the editorship of what is left of London's daily paper, The Evening Standard, which is owned by the son of a Russian oligarch, a more than symbolic register of how tightly braided the press and political economy are in today's Britain. Do you believe that the British press being tightly braided with the political economy had any effect on the outcome of last week's vote? Well, first, I want to thank you for uh, reading a much too long sentence that I wrote very well. (laughs) (laughs) I suppose my, the, that, that was just a little aside in my piece. And really what I wanted to kind of acknowledge and draw attention to there was the extremely malign role that I think, a lot, uh, you know, the British media <laughs> often plays. Uh, obviously, there is the BBC, which is sort of an honest broker, generally speaking, in, in British politics, and it's, it's fairly even-handed coverage. But... Uh, you know, the way that the British press is owned has made it skew very hard to the right. You know, I don't mean to the hard right, but very firmly to the right. And I don't know how you even begin to address that kind of problem of ownership um, in in the British media. But uh, it's it's one that no British politician really wants to grasp because if you start talking about regulating the media, people think that you're sort of, you know, sort of, uh, sort of want to turn Britain into, you know, the USSR or something. But, um, you know, it's, it's really a problem that, you know, these sort of proprietors um, uh, have such a megaphone and to the most part, they, they're on the right of politics and very much often you know, predominantly pushing a Brexit line, they were as well. Um, so that's just a huge, huge problem facing, um, facing British media in the future. And I, I wish I had more of an answer for it. And the Scottish National Party, they were victorious. The Unionist Party in Northern uh, Ireland were victorious. These were both um, places where people were voting against Brexit. Will Brexit and the UK, and is that the hope of conservatives so they can have a lock on British governance for some time in the future? Was the goal of Brexiteers always to end the UK for British nationalism and sovereignty because they can get all the conservative votes they want from Welsh and British vote and English voters? I don't think it was ever a name. I mean, the Tory party, I think still is formally speaking it's it's called the conservative and unionist party <laughs> uh but it has shown itself to be remarkably uh sort of feckless about uh caretaking the union in the course of this you know it's ridden roughshod over really um the wishes of most people in northern ireland uh and it also now faces uh I think what may ultimately be pretty irresistible political pressure for a second referendum on independence in Scotland as well. Now, I mean, there's a lot, you know, there's a lot of speculation in that, you know, Northern Ireland was still a long way, I think, from the point 
where there would be a referendum on the future of that part of, um, you know, we shouldn't call it province, but that region. Uh, you know, the, it is part of the Good Friday Agreement, the peace deal, that, uh, you know, if, if there is, uh, you know, a majority who want to unite with Ireland, then there would be, you know, if there's evidence of that, then there could and would be a referendum and potentially a, a kind of reunification of Ireland. Uh, it's not impossible now. I think it's a lot closer now than anybody thought was possible four or five years ago. Uh, I think the more immediate danger is, is that Scotland goes its own way. Uh, but I, you know, it's not, it's not a done deal. Um, I mean, if I lived in Scotland, I would be all in for, you know, the Scottish National Party's agenda on that, because it's a much more social democratic country uh, than the rest of Britain. Uh, and it wants, its vast majority of its voters wanted to stay in Europe. So somewhere like Scotland, I, if the European Union will admit it, has the possibility of European membership in its own right. Uh, you know, there are lots of questions about that yet to be answered. Does Scotland actually have a viable economy that will sustain it, sustain it as a nation outside of, uh, you know, if, if there's effectively a hard, hard European customs border on the Scottish border with England? I mean, that's a huge question. So there's an awful lot still to be, you know, kind of tussled over in the years to come. But there is, in a distinct way, there is a renewed possibility of a breakup of the union. So for those who may want Scottish or Irish independence, should they be careful of what they wish for? (laughs) Well, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of difficult to tell you know, a, a people with legitimate national aspirations, they shouldn't aspire for, you know, <laughs> sovereignty about their own, you know, uh, decision making. Um, uh, so, you know, I have, I have a lot of sympathy and, I, you know, for Scottish nationalism, certainly. Uh, I think Northern Ireland is a really complicated, a really complicated question. There's a very hardcore unionist population who are frankly more British than the British at this point, if you see what I mean. Uh, So, you know, I mean, just if you look at what's happened with Catalonia in Spain, it's not a, it's not a, you know, perfect comparison, of course, but it's, you can see how fraught the issue there is. So, uh, I mean, these are just huge constitutional questions going forward, but I don't think, but to your question, yeah, I don't think I think we should take very seriously, you know, uh, a sort of strong popular movement of national aspiration in those places. We have been speaking with editor and writer Matt Seaton, who posted the New York Review of Books article, The Strange Death of Social Democratic England. And you can follow Matt on Twitter at Matt Seaton. That's S-E-A-T-O-N. One last question for you, Matt. As it is with all of our guests, our final question is the question from hell, the question we may hate to ask, you may hate to answer. 
or our audience is going to hate your response. You write, social democratic Britain is already a tattered, damaged thing. The question is what will be left to save by the time the Labor Party can win a general election again. And earlier in your article, you argue what has made the UK a reasonably civilized country since 1945 is social democracy. What will a relatively uncivilized Britain look like under Boris Johnson and the Conservatives? You know, when I go back to visit Britain, I'm often struck by, in a way, that, you know, there's an underlying culture of sort of uh, liberal with a small L, conservative with a small C, you know, there's a great tradition of tolerance. Um, I suppose you could call that civility as well. Tolerance, certainly, though. That's obviously not going to get washed away. That, that's a sort of cultural value, you know, kind of national characteristic. So I don't think the people will change, you know, <laughs> that much at all. But I do think the economy will be a bit smaller. I think there will be less regulation. I think it will be a colder climate for trade unions. I think there will be, uh, you know, more what they call zero hours contracts and more gig economy kind of employment. Uh, So, you know, I think when I said a tattered damaged thing, I think the, you know, the tatters will be more apparent. You know, it's not going to be a kind of collapse or a sort of total disaster, but just, uh, you know, a lot of the things that made it a kind of cohesive, uh, relatively, um, uh, you know, kind of united society, even if it wasn't a kind of unequal and somewhat hierarchical one, I, I think that those things will have got worse rather than better in slight, in, you know, intangible ways, perhaps, but in perceptible ones. Matt, I really appreciate you being on the show this week. It was a very sobering analysis of the victory for the Conservatives last week in the UK. Thank you so much for being on our show. Thank you so much, Chuck. It's been a pleasure. All right. Take care. The best radio show, live stream, podcast, your best friend has never heard. And don't you think it's about time you tell them? This is hell. Our world has been ruined, and it's all by design. That is, it's all by designers who have been shielded from any responsibility for their irresponsible actions. In a few minutes, we'll be speaking with designer Mike Montero, author of Ruined by Design, How Designers Destroyed the World and What We Can Do to Fix It. Mike is the co-founder and design director of Mule Design. Mule Design describes itself as a strategic design consulting consultant helping business leaders and internal teams work with confidence and rigor. This week's question from hell is, what are you yelling at the police? What are you yelling at the police? Why is that this week's question from hell? Because Jacob Hamburger, uh, earlier on this week's show, was telling us that uh, the La France Insoumise leader, Jean-Luc Mélenchon, uh, was had his home raided and uh, was no longer in charge of La France Insoumise. And during the uh, time when his home was being raided over a possible election scandal, he yelled at the police, 
I am France. You, you can leave your response at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. The person with the best answer to this week's question from hell gets the book that we are about to discuss here on This Is Hell, Ruined by Design, How Designers Destroy the World and What They Can Do About It by Mike Montero. And we have it in oddly in magazine form that is very, very cool, like a newsprint magazine. It's really cool. Alex, let's hear all of our, not all of our listeners, but the listeners' answers that we have so far to this week's question from hell. Okay, this week's question from hell is, what are you yelling at the police? What are you yelling at the police? Yes? Jessica B. says, all cats are beautiful. <laughs> what? As a reference to what does ACAB stand for from a couple uh, months okay. ago. Uh, Dan T. says, razor or wall? <laughs> Whoa, Dan. Wow. Kyle J. says, when are you going to stop beating your wife? <laughs> Michael L. says, wow. How many more ghosts? <laughs> Mike M says, last week I called a cop dangerous and unnecessary, and uh, he was pretty triggered. <laughs> I bet. Mark C says, don't shoot. Yeah, that Probably makes good. sense. Jack W says, not brave enough to be a firefighter, eh? <laughs> that's what, that's what, a good one. What are you yelling at the police? What are you yelling at the police? <laughs> Sam P says, why are you only checking the black guy's train tickets? <laughs> J- Jacob J says... It was the old white guy with the monocle and a three-piece suit and top hat. <laughs> Nikki says, cast your lot with the hoi polloi officers. Have a blessed day. Braden S. says, nice uniform. Does your mummy iron it for you? What the hell? Garrett S. says, Leroy Jenkins. And everyone liked that one. Um, Ladio says... Why do I not know Leroy Jenkins? Why does that sound familiar? Don't worry about it, Chuck. All right. Ladio says... Oh, Jesus, laddie. Smell that poop yet, officer? What? don't know what trouble laddie's getting into over there leslie p says happy holidays (laughs) (laughs) and now that's what you should be saying to a cop especially anybody you should say it really aggressively (laughs) benjamin c says car 54 where are you stupid (laughs) Uh, john c says your motto should be veterinarian assisted suicides Borky B sent a string of expletives that uh, were used in unicode so i can't tell what it says but i'm you can use your imagination on what borky's saying over there uh, Wally R says he can't breathe. Yeah. Luke that makes H says sense. Luke H says barefoot is legal. <laughs> the street fight reference there. Max I says rectal osculation. But instead of yelling <laughs> it, singing it loudly to the tune of Happy Birthday. <laughs> like that. Jeff C says get off Indigenous people's land. Mark A S says sixteen shots of eggnog. It's <laughs> just stupid. Uh, Joe S says orange whip. <laughs> That's a good reference. What is it? What does that mean? Uh, it's from a Blues Brothers reference. Don't worry about it. Okay, uh, I thought it was like a drink, like a relative of the Dole Whip. It is a drink. Oh, okay. Damn, I want an orange whip all of a sudden without knowing <laughs> what it is. Gorilla G says, your shoe's untied. Jack B says, Brian Sumner, you tantric wanker. <laughs> I think there's probably something I need to know about Brian Sumner that I don't understand at that response. Uh, Aaron, isn't Brian Sumner, isn't that, no, that's Gordon Sumner is Sting, and he was a tantric wanker. Go ahead. Aaron D says, hey, you, get off of my cloud. Pete V says, I can masturbate any place I like. Thank you very much. It's a great thing to read from someone who we share an office space with. <laughs> it's downstairs right now next to the cat. Uh, Adam A says, Andy Summers is the only m- member that mattered. Another police Someone reference. got into police reference. Another and then finally, uh, Barrett H says, or Barrett M says, these donuts suck. <laughs> Leave your answer to this week's question from hell 
at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, and you still have a chance at winning Mike Montero's book, which we'll be discussing, discussing in just a little bit, Ruined by Design, How Designers Destroyed the World and What They Can Do to Fix It. One of the people responded, hey, why are you just looking at the black people's tickets? And past guest on our show, Peter Cole, was just recently in San Francisco, and he got on the bus, or he was riding the bus, and the police came on and were asking everybody for proof that they had paid the bus driver, that their passes were not expired. And he said that they completely focused on only the people of color and actually gave tickets to people for using a bus pass that was expired. I mean, it's just amazing what's going on in San Francisco. It's becoming such a police state. It's out of hand. And it's always, always targeting people of color. You want to gentrify a place, you just go to San Francisco and find out how they did it. Tune into tomorrow's live one-hour stream beginning at 10 a.m. Central Time, Central Daylight Time at thisishell.com, or listen to the podcast posted shortly after our live stream to find out if you've won. It's time for listener feedback. And you know what? Let's, before we do that, Alex wants, he's going to do a little recruitment pitch because we're looking for some more volunteers here on This Is Hell. Hey, uh, um, if you're listening to the show and you live in Chicago and you are free on a weekday, a weekday, uh, a weekday morning especially, that would be great. And you're interested in producing the radio show, uh, get in touch with me, Alex at thisishell.com. Uh, Chuck has been wanting to, and I think we can make this happen in 2020 is uh, just doing it every week, every day of the week, 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. Um, so if you're free kind of generally between 9 and it's like 11, 30, 12, you're 9 between 11, 12, maybe one day a week, maybe uh, one day every other week, let me know. Uh, I can teach you how to use everything. It's not hard. I don't do that great of a job. <laughs> uh, but we are looking for more producers who can help out with the show. Uh, so if you're generally reliable and uh, want to push buttons, and uh, get on the radio and help out the show. Uh, we can really appreciate the help. Email me, alex at thisishell.com, or get in touch via any of the social media channels. Yeah, I'm uh, generally somebody who likes to uh, push buttons, so there you go. Maybe I should apply for the job. It's time for a listener feedback, and your email sent to us at chuck at thisishell.com. Your direct messages sent to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, and your thoughts that you have shared with us via messenger at facebook.com slash this is Hell Radio. The first is from Josh, who is following up on my request for suggestions on where I can get my hair cut as my secretly Jewish barber finally retired from their job in an all-Muslim barbershop. Living in little India can be really weird at times, and I really, really need a haircut. My hair has gotten to the point where people are giving me change on the streets. Not that I mind getting change on the streets, don't get me wrong. I mean, if it was dollar bills, I'd be a lot happier, but it really has gotten out of hand. And it usually does right around this time of year. You can go through a history of photographs of me at the holidays with some of the worst haircuts in the world. And back in 1990, at one point, I decided I was going to not, qu- not cut my hair for 10 years. I told a friend of mine I was going to do it. I'm not going to cut my hair for 10 years. I'm not going to cut my hair for 10 years. And he didn't believe it. I didn't cut my hair for 10 years, and then I made it an 11th year, and my girlfriend told me, you know what, you just got to get it cut, and I'm going to cut it if that's what it takes. So she spent like three hours cutting my hair. I got a really good haircut, and I told her something bad's going to happen. Something bad is going to happen now that you've cut my hair. You can't cut my hair. It's going to be a horrible thing. She cut my hair on September 10th. 
2001. The next day, 9-11. See? So maybe you don't want me to get my hair cut. Josh writes, Hi Chuck. Hope all is well. Just starting episode 1,103. And by the way, I think we've done 1,400 episodes, but the numbering system didn't go back that far. Where you talk about getting your hair cut and the appropriate bird guide for your girlfriend. I'd recommend the Sibley Guide for your bird book gift, the Sibley Guide. I moved from uh, Chicago a while ago and noticed that my favorite barber has moved to Colorado. Second favorite barber now has his own shop in Park Ridge, Barber Derek. I feel like Esquire in Andersonville was the best overall when I was there in 2016, and I bounced around two, three, or four different barbers. Good luck. Best, Josh. Thanks, Josh, on the bird guide tip as well as your barber suggestions. But I, I don't know. Flying to Colorado to find your old barber to get my hair cut seems a little spendy, a little logistically problematic. And I'm not going to go from shop to shop in Park Ridge asking for barber Derek. And Andersonville prices, they scare the hell out of me. And a lot of the white people do too. But thanks for the suggestion. On the bird guide, the Sibley bird guide. Lisa also sent me another barber suggestion. Hi, Chuck. A friend has heard good things, heard good things, not seen good things, heard good things about Handsome Bastard on Greenleaf at Clark. Looks like it may be heavy on the hipster for your taste and charges $40 for a haircut and shave, but who knows? Cheers, Lisa P., first of all. I know how to shave, so I don't really need a shave. Although a barber shave is really, really fantastic. Uh, And I've never spent over $15 on a haircut, at least not since the early 1990s, if not longer before then. I used to tell my barber across the street that it wasn't fair that uh, she was only charging me $8 when I thought it was a $15 haircut, and I would give her $15. Then they raised the price to $10, and I would give her $15. And then they were raising the price to $12, and I was giving her $15, and she looked at me, and I'm like, it's it's still a $15 haircut. I was just about to up the price to $20 when she retired. And by the way, that hipster thing, that is a really, really, really big turnoff for me. And the barber suggestions keep on rolling in. Andrew writes, Hey Chuck, I heard you're looking for a barber. I personally like 17 Hair Studio at the corner of Devon and Clark. They're cheap, fast, and have great, good music playing in the background. What more could you want? Mm, do you really want to know what more I could want at a barbershop? Well, it brings me back to being like an eight-year-old and for the first time having a beautiful woman cut my hair. I also have to put in a word for JD, or is it DJ, at Avenue Hair in Evanston. The first time he cut my hair, he tried his best to convince me to not get my hair cut and forego barbers for the rest of my life. Pretty trustworthy guy. I kind of sound, I kind of like JD or DJ or whoever it is at Avenue Hair in Evanston. I like the sound of that, but unless I get a better suggestion than that, tomorrow I'll be getting my hair cut at 17 Hair Studio at the corner of Devon and Clark. There's a whole bunch of reasons why. One is it's a short walk down the street for me from this here studio or a very short bus ride. And the other thing is, it's cheap. I like that. And if I do get my hair cut tomorrow, following tomorrow's 10 a.m. Central Daylight Time, 
live stream, podcast, whatever you want to call this thing. I'll be then showing off my new do during our, I did say do, during our annual This Is Hell holiday office party tomorrow night at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon, beginning at 6 p.m. And we guarantee everyone who attends will get a free show-related gift. Coming up, we'll talk to a designer who admits our world has been ruined by design. Our post-9-11 world of mass surveillance and mass supervision will be discussed later on this week's show, and we'll have a moment of truth with Jeff Dorchin. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, podcast, live-streaming host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's show. Alex Jerry, Noam Chomsky, called This Is Hell, Sanity in Talk Radio. So clearly and very, very sadly, Noam's gone insane. This is is hell. Our screwed up world was no accident. This mess was all intentionally created by designers. Here to tell us how our world was ruined by design. Designer Mike Montero is author of Ruined by Design, How Designers Destroyed the World and What We Can Do to Fix It. Welcome to This is Hell, Mike. Hello, Chuck. How are you? Good. We want to thank printmaker Amos Kennedy, who sent us Ruined by Design in a magazine form, which is the prize for this week's question from Hell winner. Adam included a letter reading, Greetings, citizens. Seldom is there a discussion of the ethic of design. This zine begins a discussion. I hope you conduct an interview with the author, Mike Montero. So again, thank you to Kennedy Prince at Business Insider. I know this is a little bit off topic, but I think you'll get it. At Business Insider, uh, you uh, it said that, well, it's not that off topic. It's all about you. Mike Montero believes that Amazon workers should unionize. The self-published uh, author realized he could get uh, Amazon to print and distribute unionization materials to its own workers. All he had to do was print them on the front of his book. After first publishing the book in March, Montero realized he could change his book cover by uploading a new PDF on your cover. You change it not only to uh, – you didn't change necessarily the title page of where it says your book, but also this message was posted on it. Attention, Amazon workers. You have the right to decent working conditions. You have the right to bargain collectively. You have the right to form a union. The new message on the book's cover reads, followed by a link to the AFL-CIO's website. Why do you believe joining a union necessarily helps maybe save our world from what parts of it have been ruined by design? What can joining a union do to stop the ruin of our world by designers? Well, I th- because I think every worker has the right to unionize. And I think the uh, being able to bargain collectively with these people, because they can't do any of this this stuff without our labor, Chuck. I mean, they can come up with any crazy idea that they want, any ridiculous money making scheme, any Ponzi scheme like like Uber and Airbnb and all and any of that. But without us, they can't build it. So ultimately, we're the ones that are responsible for these things existing. And right now, everybody feels like, you know, they're in there by themselves. They don't have a collective voice. They aren't making decisions as a, as a collective workers unit, unit. And it's pretty disempowering. But if we realize how, just how much power we have in this situation, that's the first step into helping to fix some of this mess. I don't think unionization by itself is going to fix anything, but I, I think it's definitely one of the blocks, one of the building blocks. You dedicate your book to Batyar 
Dysack, who, as you uh, point out, for 11 glorious minutes in 2017, deactivated Donald Trump's Twitter account. Dysack was an employee at Twitter, and as he received notification that Trump's tweets had violated the terms of service, started the process by which a user can get deactivated. In a 2017 article at TechCrunch that included an interview with Dysack, he says he had no idea the deactivation would go through. However, the writers Ingrid London and Khaled Hamza explained Trump's account was quickly reactivated because, quote, it appeared that Trump's account was essentially protected from being deactivated over terms of service violations that it had committed. In June, Twitter explained why. Some tweets that seemingly violates its terms of service and nevertheless newsworthy and therefore in the public interest to uh, keep up. And London and Hamza report, one takeaway from Twitter's exemption for newsworthy tweets is that news and information Trump judgment calls on the relative toxicity of of the content, which is probably apt in our age of toxicity dressed up as news. So if you're newsworthy or what you say is newsworthy, you can say anything you want, no matter how toxic or filled with hate it is. Is Twitter then designed, in your opinion, to give those they deem newsworthy, the powerful and elite, a platform where they exclusively can spread toxic hate? Twitter works by selling ads. Twitter works by getting people to look on the, at those ads And the things, the types of tweets that drive the most traction, the most traffic to those ads are toxic tweets. The more anger that Twitter spreads, the more people will spread that anger. I was reading, uh, I I was reading something the other day, and and apologies for forgetting where uh, where this was. But uh, you remember the clickbait titles from, from a few years ago, right? Yeah, yeah. But, you know, BuzzFeed was great at this. So there's there's a new thing. And it's it's people like The New York Times that are the best at it, where they will put something that's designed to piss you off in the title. And uh, my favorite example is when uh, when when they have like a title like uh, uh, George Clooney and his wife did a thing. And you're pissed off, like, wait a minute, why are they referring to her as his wife? She has a name. And the people who get pissed off at that misleading title or that provocative title are the ones who help spread that article the most. We had, so, a, I'm sorry, we had a book given to us just recently that had a picture of Hillary Clinton on it. And on the, and on the cover was something like the uh, secret evils of Hillary Clinton. And then her name was never in the book. And it was all about some miracle cure for some stomach ailment. So I think that that kind of meme thing is now going into the publishing world, too. Yeah, I, the, the idea that if I can get you pissed off about something, you'll help spread it around is is pretty weird but it's it's what's happening in the tech world and the and in the publishing world so what do you think happens to a culture when that is what is being rewarded when hate or when anything that's kind of vile or sensational uh, is being rewarded by our financial system well we end up rewarding the most toxic among us and i think that's exactly what's happening and and i mean that's that's happened worldwide 
You write, we are so effed. In fact, we are so effed. It may already be too late for this book. We obviously can't turn back the clock and go back in time to erase all the effects, all the negative ways we have designed our world. But can't we at least undo some of that design, the worst parts of that design? Or is that nearly impossible? There, you know, I hesitate before answering this because we could. We, I mean, there's the smallest, smallest, smallest little sliver of hope that we could undo some of this if we all agreed it was a problem right now. If we all agreed on how to solve it right now, and if the world wasn't coming to its own particular climate change-enabled end, so we've got that barreling down on us. You, so go ahead. Yeah, we're we're aft. <laughs> You write, by the time you read this, Greenland may have melted, causing the world's oceans to rise by 20 feet. By the time you read this, everyone in the United States may be dead in a gunfight. By the time you read this, some idiot country may have launched a bomb at another idiot country. Facebook may have accidentally released everyone's private information into the public sphere. Twitter leadership may be getting measured for their new Hugo Boss uniforms. And Silicon Valley may be lobbying Congress to just make women illegal, in which case nothing in this book will matter. All the horrible things things listed uh, or may or may not happen, but they're definitely within the realm of possibility. And they're within the realm of possibility because we didn't do what we could to stop it. More than that, it's possible because it's how we designed the world. We designed the combustion engine that led to global warming. Climate change deniers can just stop reading right now. There is such thing as obviously climate change denialism, climate change deniers, and there's climate change apologists, the people who argue, yeah, we caused climate change, but we just did not know how bad burning fossil fuels really was. Were we ignorant and thus innocent in causing climate change in designing a world that can create climate change? I mean, sure. I mean, you can believe that, but you you should also believe that tobacco manufacturers were really surprised that tobacco killed you. What would you say to somebody then that argues that all of these are simply unintended consequences? That's a lot of unintended consequences <laughs> over a long period of time. I mean, are you are you a betting man? Are you gonna are are you gonna play those odds? Yeah, I def- definitely would not, and I am a betting man. Yeah. How much did we do this to ourselves? I mean, you write, we designed a financial incentive system that would lead Mark Zuckerberg to assert what's good for the world isn't necessarily good for Facebook and lead co-founder and CEO of Twitter, Jack Dorsey, to believe engagement was a more important metric than safety. So, uh, but how much did we do this? Isn't this the fault of others who impose their systems upon us? After all, I didn't get a vote or a voice on whether Facebook or Twitter should exist. Are the designs that ruined our world imposed upon us in an undemocratic fashion that lacked democracy and that has ruined our world? Well, I mean, when I say we, I definitely include myself in that we, because this is my industry. I was working in design and tech. I was working on the internet. Um, So I helped to make a lot of these things. And I know a lot of the people who started these companies and worked at these companies and who no longer work at these companies. So for me, that's a very close we. 
And it's definitely, I mean, it includes friends. And it includes myself. I'm not, I'm not um, opting out of, I'm not saying I didn't do any of this horrible shit. Oops. Uh, you bleeping things on here, Chuck? <laughs> not when we're live streaming, but when we do play this over the radio, over the air, we do bleep stuff. But don't worry about it. That's not my job. That's Alex's. Because I'm trying hard here. I'm trying to keep it clean. Uh but yeah, I mean, we were we were responsible. You are responsible for the things that you bring into the world with your own hands, and the things and the the things that happen with the stuff that you make. Ultimately, it's your responsibility. I mean, when Oppenheimer saw the results of splitting the atom, he he was pretty clear on whose fault that was. He he took that one on the chin. And I mean, when we take a look at the stuff that we've, we've been doing out here in Silicon Valley and how that ties into, you know, capitalism and and uh, the way that people make their money out here is so foul and so gross. I, you know, the other day I was sitting in a cafe right by, by my house and there's a couple of kids next to me. They're like. You know, I say kids, they're like late 20s, early 30s. And one of them is complaining to the other one that he's afraid he's not going to make his first million before he hits 30. And I think, what is wrong with us that that's, that that's within somebody's idea of what's reasonable? Because it's not. It, yeah, it, it's not. It's not reasonable for all of us. And you're right. This might be a good time to ask ourselves how we got here, what our role was in getting here, what our role will be in making sure we don't get here again. When it comes to climate change denial, for instance, to what extent do you think that denial is driven by an unwillingness of deniers uh, have when it comes to considering the role they are playing in ruining the world? Is the biggest challenge for all of us, not just designers, but everyone, considering the role we played, each of us individually and collectively, as a group, and may even remain complicit in our world's ruin? Well, I think that the biggest issue in denying it is that if we accept culpability for it, if we, if we accept that it's real, then we have to do something. And we're not quite ready to do something about it yet. Because it's, it's, it's very easy to pretend this stuff's not happening, for the most part. It hasn't really affected us yet. It hasn't affected us at a visceral level. They're, like, when you talk about climate change, you, I mean, you, you, you see the effects of it in, you know, just going outside and, and you know, finding out that it's, like, snowing in... September. But for the most part, it's still pretty easy to pretend it's not happening. When you take a look at what's happening, like along our southern, we have concentration camps on the southern border of our country. But it's very easy to forget that they're there. And to remember that they're there and to accept the fact that they're there means that we would have to deal with it we would have to fix we would have to think about it and we would have to come to terms 
that this is something that we're allowing to happen in our lifetime. So instead, we argue about what they're called. And we, and we move on to thinking about something else. You write that we need two things, the desire to do the right thing and enough time to change course. But you also point out we may not be able to do much about the latter, that is change, that is the time to make a change from our present course. Do you believe we have the desire to do the right thing? And I don't mean you and I or the people listening or people who would read your book, but more generally, do you think our culture, our society, considering we ruined our world by design, as you argue, and we continue to burn more and more fossil fuels on an annual basis, setting all-time records every year, do you believe that we have the desire to do the right thing? No, I don't. How do you get that desire? How do you encourage that desire? It it has to hit home. If if we had the desire to fix anything, we would be in the streets right now and we would never leave until things were fixed. I mean, we're lo- so take a look around the world and you'll see you'll see people who who are actually being hit by st- like the kids in the kids in Hong Kong and the people in Chile and other places around the world where people have been like seriously affected by the bullshit that's going on around them. And those people are in the streets and they're not leaving the streets until something's changed, until they've had an effect. And we look at those people and we're like, look at those heroes, they're awesome. They're really doing something. And then we take a look at what's happening in our own country. And we say to each other, well, what can we do? And it never occurs to us that the stuff that's happening here is the stuff that's happening there, and they're showing us a solution, but we're not putting two and two together because that solution scares the hell out of us. So we don't see it. Why is it always easier to do the wrong thing? Why is the right thing so much more difficult? Why design to do what's wrong? I I mean, why does alcohol so good? Why does smoking taste so good? Why is sugar so good? Turns out that things that are bad for you feel really good. Is your goal... And they're comfortable. Is your goal to motivate people, even within design, to be kinds of saboteurs within, say, the social media industry, or to simply just be better designers? Well, here, here's, here's the, the, the amazing... Uh, here's the thing that always gets me. I get I get people who reach out to me after they've read the book and they say uh, I really liked it it was a very hopeful book and I'm 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 frankly shocked um cuz I mean what I say right in the beginning is is look I it, you're probably going to be reading this on an escape pod somewhere uh but somewhere in there, they found hope. It's not a lot, but it's at least something to cling to. I really do think that we have 
an opportunity still, a very, very, very small, like smallest sliver of an opportunity to turn things around. And we, we have to take it. I mean, we'd be idiots not to take it because not taking it is kind of unthinkable, right? So when the unthinkable becomes, I mean, it's kind of impossible to think about that stuff. That's why it's unthinkable. So when the unthinkable is impossible, the only thing that's left is the most likely outcome. So let's give it a shot. Let's at least try. You write that if nothing else works, then and only then will we learn how to throw ourselves on the gears of the odious machines we're being asked to create. We're going to learn how being a designer is being a gatekeeper. We're about to make become humankind's last line of defense against monsters. With as much control over our lives as we have voluntarily given away to these machines— how inevitable do you think it is that we throw ourselves to, into the gears of the machines? Will this system of control only give up that control when confronted by force? Yes. Um, yeah, I mean, I honestly think that's true. There's absolutely... The world is working exa exactly the way these people designed it to work. They're making money. Um, if you're familiar with, you know, the crap that just happened, that's been happening at WeWork or over the last month. Um, everybody who invested in WeWork and uh, that ridiculous CEO, Adam guy, that dude walked away with four billion dollars. I believe it was four billion. Everybody who worked there, like a huge percentage of the workforce got laid off. Uh, but the people who it needed to work for, it worked for. They got their money. They got paid. And the crap that happens to the, to the people at the bottom, to the people who are working, to the people who actually build the thing, that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter to them. So the people at the top, the venture capitalists and the founders and the CEOs and the banks that support all this. And I know that it sounds like I'm headed in a tinfoil territory, but tinfoil hat territory, but all of those people got theirs. All of the Uber investors got theirs. The Uber CEO got his. And Uber just released a, a, a report over the last couple of weeks about the amount of sexual harassment cases that happen on the platform every year, and even the amount of deaths that occur because of Uber, both to riders and drivers. You know, it's working. It's working exactly the way these people designed it to work. So why would they change it? You write, by trade, you are a UX designer. That phrase may not exist in 10 years, you admit. I design digital things that people interact with, so most of my examples will be from that realm within my book, which is fine because that's where most of the damage is being done. Whether you're an industrial designer, a graphic designer, a fashion designer, a furniture designer, or a designer of congressional districts, please stick around and read. I guarantee you'll get something out of my book. Can we blame digital things for all the problems with industrial graphics? 
graphic fashion furniture or designers of congressional districts. Isn't our design problem the fact that everything has become boiled down to an algorithm that is mistakenly believed to be completely objective when it was designed by humans? I mean, sure, design was bad before it became digitized, but now that it has been, it can be implemented quickly and ubiquitously by a single keystroke. So do we need to simply de-digitize design? And how far do you think that would go to making our world a little less ruined? Oh, I'm, I'm not blaming every, I'm not blaming digital design for everything. I'm just blaming digital design for making it all so much easier and at such bigger scale. I mean, we used to, I mean, you talk about um, designing congressional districts and I mean, gerrymandering is, is like one of the one of the, 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 the best examples of how you can design something to get the outcome that you want. But, but you know, we had to do it at, at like a, 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 a small area by area, in a small area by area way. Now you can, I mean, you, you can get on Facebook and you can reach 3 billion people at once. And you can micro-target the hell out of those three billion people. So the the ease at which digital design and the scale that digital design has brought to this is is yet to be measured, I believe. I love this one line you write. You write, half the lessons of your writing were first taught to me by Mr. Rogers. So Mr. Rogers teaches us as children to have an ethical life guided by morality. And then we become adults. We live in a system that tells us, rewards us for acting unethically. How do you think that makes us feel as human beings when you're trained as a little kid? Act morally, act ethically. And then as soon as you get into the real world, yeah, all those morals and ethics, all those are going to get in the way of you making a buck. Well, it, it it should make you feel like a like a jerk for not remembering those lessons. Those were good lessons, and honestly, if we had remembered those lessons, we'd all be doing okay. I mean, I know people who work at Facebook and people who work at Twitter, and every once in a while, I'll reach out to them and say, "Hey, your company just did this. How are you okay working there?" And their reply is always some version of, I have a mortgage to pay. Yeah, it's either that or I have kids to feed. I've heard that so many times. You write, if we're going to get past the current mess, we need everyone to do their part. We need to demand better from ourselves, those we work with and those we work for. No matter where you work, how big or small your role is or how much influence you believe you have. And I guarantee you, it's more influence than you currently think. At work, many do feel powerless, and they are just doing their job and what they're paid to do, and any challenge would be severely disciplined, they figure, if not get you fired. What leads you to believe that we have any more power at work whatsoever, whatsoever, especially under neoliberalism, where we have far more precarious lives within the gig economy? Because I've seen it happen. I've been working in this industry for like 25, almost 30 years. And I, I have, I ran my own shop for, I'm still, I still run my own shop, but the, one of the biggest lessons I learned as a designer 
is that the minute that you stand up for the people you're supposed to be designing for, which is the people affected by your work, the minute you stand up for them, you get you get respect. You get respect from the people who are paying you, which is counterintuitive, but it actually works. And a lot of these people who are complaining, like, I don't have any effect on here, they've never tried. They have never pushed back against something that they've been told to do. Now, a lot of people have, but a lot of people who, but, but, a lot of the people who are saying this stuff have never, ever tried. And if they were to try, if they were to say to Mark Zuckerberg or Jack Dorsey, I'm not going to build this, I think they would be surprised at what would happen. You write how design is a political act. Is there any attempt, did you ever witness attempts within design to obscure the fact that as you see it, design is a political act? Have you worked with designers who you believe would argue that it is not the case that it's political? Because we know that everything is political. Oh, I've, I've, I mean, I've had this argument both ways with tons of designers and it's not just in the US it's the world over i mean any any way that you choose to use your labor is a political act the people who you choose to do it for and the people who you leave out of doing the work that's a political act when you build when 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 a when a platform like twitter is built by a room that has nothing but white men in it that's a political act. Because who are you leaving out of that equation? Whose problems are you not considering? Whose biases are you baking into the foundation of that tool? That's all a political act. You also mentioned how Mark Zuckerberg and Jack Dorsey, the heads of Facebook and Twitter, are not going to be seen in the future as well as they're seen today. You write some chapters already in the books. Jack Dorsey and Mark Zuckerberg's stories are coming to a close. Our children and their children will read about them. There'll be sidebars, cautionary tales of people who had an opportunity to do good in the world and didn't have the strength of character to do the right thing. Their stories are, are written. Yours is not. Why do you believe history will not look fondly upon Facebook's Zuckerberg or Twitter's Dorsey? Well, maybe that's just me writing some fan fiction for the future. <laughs> um, but I mean, the the sword of justice is slow and bends to but bends. To, how, oh God, I just forgot the quote I was going to use. Horrible. I'm horrible radio, Chuck. <laughs> No, you're not. You're doing great. So you write, I've been uh, earning a living as a designer for over 20 years. In that time, I've been asked to design things that would lie to users, trick subscribers, and build customers and hold customers hostage. I didn't enjoy doing these things. But for a time, I did them because I thought that was my job. And it didn't occur to me that asking myself whether I was doing the right thing 
was allowable. So is design as it exists today a lie meant to trick customers into paying for your product? And what is what happens to design? What happens to all of us when all design is is a lie meant to trick customers into paying for their product? Well, I'm not saying that. What I'm what I'm saying I mean what I'm talking about there is the idea that Designers forget the agency that they have when they're hired to do something. And when I first started out, like I was so scared that somebody would discover I had no idea what I was doing. And, I think, and, and since then, I realized, hey, that's true for everybody doing anything. Everybody's afraid somebody's going to come along and realize you don't know what you're doing. So, you, so the, and the quickest way. To, 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 to get past that is just to do whatever you're told because you figure, you know, the people telling you to do this stuff, they got to know more than you do, right? You want to get along and you don't want to get fired. So you do everything you're told. And then at some point you develop some sort of sentience where you realize, wait a minute, this stuff might actually hurt people or this seems kind of deceptive and you don't, doesn't really occur to you that you can say, yeah, I'm not going to do this. You just keep doing it until you get to a point, hopefully, where like, you know what? I'm not do this anymore. You To be good at this job, you have to be willing to get fired every single day. If you're not walking into, into this job willing to get fired, then you're not doing it right. And I mean, maybe this is something that I learned as a kid growing up under Reagan. But we thought we were already dead. So we kind of attacked the world fearlessly. And it taught us how to just, you know, go into, you know, go, go into, start, you know, start a project with the idea that, you know, I'm going to do this the right way if you have a problem with it then you can fire me, but I'm not going to do it the wrong way because I figure I'm fired already. We have been speaking to designer Mike Montero, author of Ruined by Design, How Designers Destroyed the World and What We Can Do to Fix It. You can find out more about his design outfit called Mule Design at muledesign.com. You can find out more about Mike at mikemontero.com. And you can follow Mike on Twitter at Montero, M-O-N-T-E-I-R-O. One last question for you, Mike. And as we do with all of our guests, our final question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. You write, now is, now is not the time for designers to get political. That was yesterday. Now is the time to wake up and fight. By political, I'm talking about caring who our world work is affecting. I'm talking about caring about who it's helping and who it's hurting. I'm talking about who's making decisions design decisions and who's being left out of them. I'm talking about increasing our definition of design beyond aesthetics and into ramifications. I'm talking about what we're willing to support and what we're willing to lay the tools down for. I'm talking about taking care of people. More than anything, is our system, our financial incentive system, our uh, social media industry system, is it all designed not to care, to not have empathy for others? Yes, 
I mean, our it, it, yeah, capitalism had a fairly good run, I might say, maybe not, uh, but it's done. I mean, we're when we're taking a look at the state of the world today and the state and, and the state of the people in it, and figuring out what we actually need to do to survive this. We need to be looking out for each other, and we need to be looking out for the people who are in the most trouble first, no matter what it might cost us. And again, these are the lessons that Mr. Rogers taught us when we were kids. So it's not like I'm coming up with this stuff out of thin air. The answers were always there. Mike, thank you so much for being on the show with us this week. I really appreciate it. Again, Mike is the author of Ruined by Design, How Designers Destroyed the World and What They Can Do to Fix It. Thank you so much for being on our show. Thanks for having me, Chuck. Sure. Another end of the world is possible. This is hell. This week's question from hell is, what are you yelling at the police? What are you yelling at the police? Leave your response on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can email it to us at chuck at thisishell.com or alex at thisishell.com. And you can send it to us in a direct message via Twitter at thisishellradio. Alex, do you have more responses to this week's question from hell? Uh, no, Barrett H, uh, or Barrett M's, these donuts suck is uh, still the last one we have. <laughs> All right. Leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. Like I said, facebook.com slash this is hell radio. And you still have a chance at winning Ruined by Design by Mike Montero, how designers destroy the world and what they can do to fix it. Alex, what's happening on tomorrow's one-hour show beginning at 10 a.m.? Uh, we're talking with Brendan McQuaid about his book, Pacifying the Homeland. Mm, that I'm is depressed. a very, very depressing book, by the way. I mean, not, you're not surprised, but that's a very depressing book. Is it? I mean, it's on our show. We hope to see you all at our annual This Is Hell holiday office party, which happens this Wednesday evening, tomorrow night, December 18th, beginning at 6 p.m., going until somebody does something really dumb. Is your office too cheap to throw a holiday party? Make our holiday office party your holiday office party and invite all your coworkers to the This Is Hell holiday office party. Don't particularly like everyone at your office? Then invite the cool kids kids to the This Is Hell holiday office party. Does your work not have an office and you all work together virtually online from your own homes? Then invite all your co-workers to the annual This Is Hell holiday office party where we promise everyone who attends will get a This Is Hell related gift. Need a last minute gift? We'll also have all of our This Is Hell merchandise available. That's tomorrow, Wednesday, December 18th, beginning at 6 p.m. and running until who the hell knows. At Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon, here in Chicago's Little India neighborhood. Uh, so don't know. So we got McQuaid. Let's see. I guess that's all we got to do. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. I want to thank Alex for producing and thank our guest, Mike Montero, who is the author of Ruined by Design how designers destroyed the world and what they can do to fix it. And I also want to thank editor and writer Matt Seaton, who posted the New York Review of Books article, The Strange Death of Social Democratic England. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this morning's show. That's by sitting down on this afternoon's show, this week's show, let's say this week's. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's show so far. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying the simple words, everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down 
and my demon tries to put me on a hell ride.